Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our read-through of Catching Fire, looking at chapters 11 and 12. Could you start us off with a recap of what happens in these chapters? Yeah, so Katniss drops from a tree over the electrified fence and injures her foot and tailbone, but shrewdly buys some items around town to help provide an alibi. And then there are two peacekeepers at her house when she gets back, and they've been waiting for her for hours. Katniss explains that she's been all over town, and Pete and Hamish are there and cleverly joke about her not listening to people to help reinforce her alibi. Once the peacekeepers leave after saying the fence will have electricity full-time from now on, Katniss's injuries are treated, and Peter tucks her into bed, and she asks him to stay with her. Hashtag always. Always. He helps Katniss fill in the plant knowledge in her family's book as she recovers. Then the prep team arrives for her wedding dress photo shoots. The day after that, there is mandatory TV programming to show the dresses so that Capitol citizens can vote on their favorite. And then Snow announces the 75th Hunger Games Quarter Quell. Katniss learns that her mom's close friend died in the last quell. And the chapters end with Katniss finding out that the tributes this year will all be past victors. And as the only female victor from District 12, that means she will have to go back into the arena. Betrayal. <laughs> I mean, seriously, yes. <laughs> ultimate betrayal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some important things happening here. <laughs> yes. So let's let's head into our first segment. This is our striking moments. So what moments stood out to you during this read-through? One thing that I was noticing is during this amazing scene of her coming home and then her and Peta and Hamish all playing off of each other so well, yeah. is that she thinks... This is why they've made it this far. Nothing throws them. And I, I think that's definitely true. Mm -hmm. But I was kind of wondering if it's another place that she downplays herself a bit. Because it wasn't, that's why we've made it this mm. far. Because it's also why she has made it this far. <laughs> Look how well she reacted to peacekeepers being right there when she opened the door to her home yeah she was just able to pull story out of nothing and make it humorous and so yeah i i think her being able to very quickly not be thrown by certain things and react in a way that is very strategic and she's pretending that she didn't severely injure her foot and her tailbone and things like that. Yeah, I think she's just as clever and skilled at this particular thing as Hamish and Peta are, but she's just noticing it in them, and an observation of that in herself is absent. Totally, yeah. Yeah, they should start an improv group. <laughs> that should be their talent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they would not be able to get Hamish to do it. No. What was Hamish's talent? I know, right? <laughs> oh, Hamish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what about you? What were your striking moments? 
One was I was really struck by how much Katniss is clearly attracted to Peeta's creativity. Mm. She describes how he goes into his own world when he's drawing. And it just made me think about how people tend to be at their most attractive when they're doing something that they're passionate about and that they're good at. It frankly reminded me of an anime I recently watched about <laughs> uh, cosplay where one of the characters is really interested in designing clothes and things like that. And it just, yeah, kind of highlights when people seek out and engage with their own passions, how uh, how captivating that can be. And how Katniss, even when she has, quote unquote, decided that she's meant to be with Gale, she still really appreciates that about Peta, not necessarily even as in a romantic way, but just in a way that's really, really recognizing that skill and how important that is for him. Yeah, which is also funny you bringing up, even though she's decided she should be with Gail, but then there hasn't been another thought about that since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just occasionally she'll be like, I have to remind myself that I decided to be with Gail. Yeah. <laughs> Peta can be distracting. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's spying on him. <laughs> yes. One of the other things that really hit me, though, was the use of nationalist language hmm. and nationalist history in particular uh, when Snow is reading out the card. Oh, yeah. And how he mentions that two quote unquote rebels died for each capital quote unquote citizen. Yeah. Those terms are so loaded. I mean, first off, the idea that the capital is the victim here when they <laughs> lost half as many people is yeah. pretty wild. But yeah, the way they they frame it in a way that is rebels versus citizens. And as an American, certainly citizenship is a loaded term because it is more often than not at this point used to exclude others, uses a way of signifying those who do not have it rather than those who do or or the idea of community yeah i've always noticed the term citizen used for capital residents uh, i think it's very purposefully used totally. toward yeah a way to show only the people in the capital have any quote-unquote rights mm -hmm. and no one else in the rest of panem has any yeah absolutely and it shows who's valued uh, which I think is also something that, for me, reminds me of certain histories where, when I think back to World War II, for example, in the United States, there's so much nationalist fervor about the greatest generation and the attack on Pearl Harbor and all these other kinds of things and D-Day. But I think half a million Americans died in that war versus 50 million Soviet citizens and troops died. Mm -hmm. And I think like 30 million Germans, you know, and so like there's numbers in such higher quantities that are just staggering. But we don't think about all of those Soviet citizens' deaths when we think about the horrors of World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we move into our next segment from another point of view? So what perspectives other than Katniss's did you read parts of these chapters through? Yeah, so I was mainly thinking about two different point of views. So one was Hamish and Peter, how they ended up in Katniss's kitchen. Oh my god, I was thinking about this exact same thing. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so fun. So I was thinking about it from Peter's point of view. Is that the same as you? 
kind of. I, I was actually thinking a little bit more, I guess, about Hamish. Oh, but good. Yeah, so okay, perfect. perfect. Okay, so I was kind of imagining Peta seeing peacekeepers go to Katniss's door and just him having this worry and anxiety flood him because mm. anytime peacekeepers go to your door, that's not a good thing. So I was thinking about him forcing himself to wait like two minutes just to see if they if they would come out because you, you don't want to run over there because then it seems suspicious right totally. since they didn't leave the the house then i was thinking of him going over to hamich and telling him that he saw this and what should they do and them discussing and deciding to go over together to help act like everything is fine and normal and this is a usual little victor's dinner <laughs> and hangout time by mm. the hearth you know that he wanted to help in any possible way in case someone like prim or katniss's mom weren't great at lying on their feet like mm -hmm. he and hamish are i was thinking about him just trying to keep conversation going with different people or or with Hamish and joking about things and their game and everything to try to diffuse Prim's stress and also kind of take focus away so that it wouldn't be as noticeable that yeah. she's just really stressed there yeah to just try to help out in that way but also to be there if Katniss does come home and something more serious is going to happen and then him just waiting and the hours are ticking by and him, you know, trying to convince himself that Katniss would leave without him, but that she wouldn't leave without Prim mm -hmm. or her mom. But then also other worries creep in like, but what if they told her to go? What if, what if, and, and they can't communicate that to me and Hamish right now. And, you know, just all of these different things. Just, yeah, going through his head as he's trying to be helpful, uh, but still has his own worries as well. Yeah, absolutely. But also feeling like at least some support or appreciation that Hamish is there too. That he's not the only one trying to do this. Totally, yeah. What about you? What were you thinking for it? I was thinking a lot of similar things. I guess to, to add on from Hamish's perspective, I very much felt like Hamish would be much less likely to regularly come over for dinner and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and even feel like he should come over, you know, in times of worry. But it made me kind of think about how Hamish sees this as a situation with real danger, similar to how he helped stand up for Katniss after she was whipped. He, you know, kind of started pushing his weight around and, and using the language of the capital and like, oh, now her face isn't going to be camera ready. Mm -hmm. um, so Hamish, like, yeah, knowing how to respond to those situations, knowing how to use the power they have as tributes made me think about, yeah, why, why Hamish would be there, what was on his mind. And a lot of it, I think, would come from Hamish really seeing the, the possible danger of the situation. Mm -hmm. And even though both Katniss and Peter are good at lies and subterfuge and all of that Hamish just has so much more experience and so much longer of a history with how things work exactly um so 
Yeah, I could see himself getting out of bed for this. <laughs> totally. But I did stop for a second and think about how Hamish was playing chess with Peta. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so Hamish is, is obviously an intelligent and pretty strategic thinker. But at the same time, I can't imagine him enjoying playing chess. <laughs> uh, particularly not in his half-drunken state that he's been in recently. I can see him either stuffing through withdrawals and just being frustrated or being too drunk to actually be paying much attention. Mm-hmm. And so in either way, like, I, I don't see Hamish as particularly having the patience required for someone to really enjoy a game of chess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't really see him seeing the point. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So uh... Of all the games. <laughs> So that that small detail I thought was really interesting because that that for me sparked like the like, oh, what are they doing there, though? Yeah. (laughs) Because they didn't just come over to play chess. I know. Do they even know how to play chess? (laughs) Right. (laughs) You said you had another example, though, right? Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about is the female peacekeeper in this scene, because my assumption is that this whole little trap for Katniss was planned by Thread, not by Snow. Mm-hmm. Because Snow would have already had plans for the quarter quell, so there would be no reason to do this. But Thread, I could see, you know, being a bit vindictive in this way. Absolutely. Seeing Katniss as undesirable, number one, and <laughs> yes. doing whatever he feels is necessary without direct orders to do so exactly and so if he's the person spearheading this i was just picturing the female peacekeeper in this scene's point of view having to wait for hours Mm. and asking them questions or having hamich ask her questions (laughs) and like she's not allowed to give information or having the other peacekeeper that's with her who seems a little less competent Mm -hmm. just look to her for everything you know and just being like so frustrated and annoyed and how uncomfortable it would just be sitting in this room for hours i was also thinking about if hearing hamich and Peta just chatting and joking with prim and things like that i wonder if their voices, Hamish and Peter's voices, if she's from District 2, which a lot of the peacekeepers are, mm. if that could bring to mind the 74th Hunger Games and visuals of what happened to Cato mm. and with his like hours of torture as a tribute from her district and uh, of Clove dying. And even if you didn't know them personally, either of them or both, Yeah, I mean, those aren't things that you probably want to think on. I imagine the voice of Hamish and Peto were so featured Mm -hmm. during the 74th Hunger Games that, yeah, it could bring those things to mind. And so maybe you're just, maybe she would have just been trying to distract herself and think of other things because, like, there's literally nothing she can do. She would know that Thread would not see it as acceptable for them to leave the house until news of Katniss's death or capture was brought to them, right? Yeah, just just being annoyed at being the person that has to be on top of things in this situation and knowing once Katniss comes home that 
Thread's just going to be angry yeah. when they deliver that news to him. So, yeah, I was just kind of thinking about that. Not not that I am pro <laughs> her or peacekeeping or, you know, any of these things that are happening here, but just trying to get into that perspective of, of what that could have been like was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And then to have it end all with Katniss being like, but wasn't the fence already electrified? Yeah. Thank you very much for... Fixing that lapse Fixing that lapse. Security. Yeah, exactly. We'll just all to, sleep a little better. <laughs> just to... Uh... <laughs> so amazing, though. <laughs> yeah. Imagine her walk home that day is just so frustrated. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What about you? Did you have any other point of views? Yeah, I, I was thinking about Hamish's perspective near the end of these chapters. Mm. Because... Katniss's mom brings up how Maisie Donner, her close friend, died in the last quarter quell, which was the one that Hamish won. Mm-hmm. And so he clearly not only knew Maisie Donner, but he trained alongside her. He maybe shared a mentor. They had, you know, a lot of shared experiences and his survival in part relied on her death. And so for Katniss's mom to bring that up, we, we don't really see Hamish's response to that but I can imagine it being really difficult when he's already feeling anxious when he's finding out that the quarter quell card is being drawn like that must be extremely triggering for him because the last time a quarter quell card was drawn it ruined his life and then for this one to put him back in that position after all of these reminders oh my god after uh after he survived the last one Mm-hmm. And then he got two tributes to survive. Mm-hmm. And now they're basically saying that at the most, one of them will be able to survive. Well, and that's the thing. Maybe he had the hope that he wouldn't have to mentor. This would be the first yeah. year he wouldn't have to mentor in 25 years. And even if he's not going to go in, he still has to watch these two people that maybe he thought Not in a super conscious way, because I don't think Hamish would allow himself to think like, oh, maybe these are two people that I can actually have relationships with long term. But to know that one or both will be dead. Again, you know, maybe one of the only things that he could feel good about over the past 25 years of mentoring is now like gone. Yeah. Yeah, and and for him to be a possible tribute alongside Peta, you know, one of the two of them has to be chosen. Neither of those is going to be a good choice for him. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I, I can I can imagine the despair that he feels, uh, and yeah, just how awful that whole scene must have been for him. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's it's a lot. It's almost like that was intentional by Snow. Yeah, no. Snow. Bro. You go so low. Eat crow. (laughs) Good one. Good one. Anyways. (laughs) Yeah, well, why don't we head into our touch points? Uh, This is where we relate things that we're seeing in the story to things that we see in our own society. So what touch points did you have? So one thing that really stood out to me was when Canis was recuperating. Mm Mm-hmm. 
there was a quote that I wrote down that was staying quietly in bed is hard after that. I want to be doing something, finding out more about District 13 or helping the cause to bring down the Capitol. Instead, I sit around stuffing myself with cheese buns and watching PETA sketch. And I just like so related to the, that sentiment. For me, with my chronic fatigue and, and pain, there's there's just so much I would like to be doing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And there's so many causes I would like to fight for and, you know, different things like that if I had the energy. But instead, it's like, well, I'm just going to sit here and rest, you know. <laughs> and so reading that stood out to me, definitely. And, and I think probably a lot of people who have a variety of disabilities probably feel similarly because oftentimes they see how the systems are structured against them mm -hmm. um, but don't always have the resources or ability to put energy into trying to bring those things down or change the systems and so yeah that just hit me yeah and and how if she had ignored her need for rest she just would have been less capable of actually creating any change anyway mm -hmm. and how that rest is can be frustrating but it is actually necessary to make it so that you can do what you can do yeah i mean granted she is able to recuperate so this is partially the difference but um i think some of the, the that little bit of feeling there just a nice thing for suzanne collins to add in mm -hmm. just a, just a detail yeah yeah that makes sense another thing i was thinking about is just the whole wedding dress situation. Your favorite part of the chapter, <laughs> I'm guessing. We talked about a bit when discussing the previous book, when she's able to go home and put clothes on that feel like her mm -hmm. and put her hair back in its braid, right? And, you know, throughout our discussions, just different ways that the capital takes body autonomy and, and consent away from tributes and victors so yeah i mean this is another way this is a forced marriage this is even on a smaller scale the clothing choices and how and when she is presented to the world they're all taken away from her and capital citizens vote on what they want her to wear yeah, yeah it's just again and again and again her choice of what to do with her own body and who can interact with it are are stripped away from her. Yeah, I love that moment too because it also highlights the limits to which the capital citizens are just don't know any better, which you know, I think that through this podcast I've I've come to try to get in the heads of capital citizens who are lured through capitalism and entertainment and, and propaganda and all these other kinds of things to be not ill-intentioned but still highly complicit actors in these awful oppressive structures. Mm -hmm. This one here, I think, you know, for them, the, the, the wedding itself is really, if anything, for them to help keep them going along with the fiction that Katniss and Peeta were madly in love and, and this is what they want and yet even within that fiction they're the ones choosing which dress she's going to wear yeah even for them who apparently believe that these 
tributes and victors find this as an honor and they're just, you know, happy to be getting married. They still are so excited about the idea of taking away that kind of choice from mm-hmm. Katniss. It's not, wouldn't she rather choose her own dress? Right. And I love that following the photo shoot, Katniss has a nightmare of being chased by the mutts from the 74th games, but she's in one of those bridal gowns. Yeah. And so I love that in that nightmare, you see these different types of body oppressions coming together in Katniss's subconscious. Totally, yeah. I'm usually kind of hit or miss on dream sequences in TV and movies, but I thought that that would have been a powerful addition to the movies, is Mm. seeing a bit of her interiority and seeing that symbolism, like you were saying, of how all of these elements, including the wedding, are oppressive. Totally, yeah. So my next point is a spoiler for the end of this book. So if you haven't finished it yet, skip ahead six minutes and 15 seconds. I wanted to talk about Hamish gaslighting Katniss about District 13. (gasps) Gaslighting has been talked about more recently, but the term comes from a film Mm -hmm. from... 1944 I believe so the idea has been around for quite some time now of someone trying to manipulate someone through convincing them that they're wrong when they're right or convincing them that there's something wrong with them when there isn't or convincing them not to trust themselves uh, to, to doubt their own experiences yeah certainly that can happen in relationships But also, uh, more recently, there's also been research into it. The issue of gaslighting is not just a psychological phenomenon, but also a sociological one. There is a term, structural gaslighting, that can apply across gender and race, class, ability, etc. And I, I was looking a little bit into this, and a prime example would be police saying that the killing of an unarmed black person or person of color was an accident, Mm -hmm. right? So you have this source of authority, quote-unquote, this structure, putting out a lie, even if there's video footage, even if there's other things that are showing the opposite. At Seattle University, two professors of political science have been particularly researching racial gaslighting and how it can maintain a pro-white and anti-black balance in society. The two professors are Angelique M. Davis and Rose Ernst. So if you want to look up anything for that, you can. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting. And so I think it's interesting because gaslighting happens a lot in the Hunger Games books. Yeah. <laughs> And we see the capital lying to their own capital citizens with things like, oh, there's no shrimp because of bad weather in <laughs> District 4, when that's never been a thing before totally. that they've had to deal with. But then we see Hamish using this. And in this way, it's a, it's a personal relational setting. But what he says is also using the capital stance on... District 13 being obliterated. So it's this weird melding, I think, of the of both of those things, of the capital convincing the population that District 13 is gone, it was wiped off the face of the earth, 
and now Hamish using that idea, but then in a relational way, manipulating Katniss. You know, he could have lied to Katniss in a way that wasn't gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And he could have said, you know, that's an interesting theory. I'll think about it or covertly ask around about it. Even though he wouldn't do that because he already knows that it exists. Yeah. But it wouldn't be gaslighting her. But he chose instead to tell Katniss this was the imaginings of a desperate person. Yeah. The only reason that she's hoping for this is because she's desperate as well. And so he made her doubt her own logic and her own experiences and her own observations, which is deeply problematic. Yeah. And so I was kind of wondering, does that play into the potential sexism that we've discussed in relation to Hamish? Is this just another example, another avenue that is coming out? Is it the fact that gaslighting tactics are so pervasive in Panem that that's just where his first thought goes to, you know? Because, like, his entire existence has been kind of shrouded in this. Yeah, I was also wondering if there's a fair amount of people in the districts that actually believe the lies of the capital instead of rolling their eyes at them, like, Katniss and Hamish and Peter do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was just I was thinking about those things and how here Hamish is tapping into a, a, a bad touch point. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I, I think it definitely touches on his tendency to be dismissive of Katniss's agency and Katniss's wisdom. I think that seeing his knowledge of the plan to help Katniss become the Mockingjay. I think he sees her in some ways as a tool, but he doesn't necessarily trust her to always do what's right or what's best for for his goals. Which I think is really unwarranted. Certain things, maybe it could be protecting her or whatever, like not knowing fully of the plan, but that still doesn't mean that it's right and that doesn't mean that that couldn't have had a disastrous effect. Absolutely. But... Outside of that, yes, sometimes she will act rashly, like shooting at the game makers. Yeah. But she never reveals information accidentally that she doesn't want someone to know. Like, that's not what she does. She's incredibly calculated with what she says. If she's going to have an outburst, it's not going to be an outburst that gives something away accidentally about a plan. That's not Katniss. It's underestimating her. Yeah, and and I think that anyone could underestimate her in a similar position, but Hamish brings a cruelty to it at times that belies his own problematic natures. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. But what about you? What are your touch points? Well, one thing that you mentioned I want to expand a little bit on, which is how the prep team talk about how they can't get access to certain goods, and that lets... Katniss know that there are probably revolts going on in the districts that provide those goods. Mm-hmm. I just saw so much of our society in the prep team when they're complaining about how they couldn't get shrimp or designer <laughs> clothes or, or whatever it might be. And it's, yeah. you know, similar to when price increases exist in our society 
and people are upset about the price increase and not the conditions that lead to that. Very recent examples are things like the cost of gas going up, in part because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And Petrol? Uh, yes, petrol, gasoline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how, however you may determine uh, what to call that. I mean, petrol's accurate. The best and version, yeah, petroleum. Americans. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I think while the world has looked at Ukraine with sympathetic eyes for the most part, there still is so much frustration with how this is impacting our economy. And it's not like ever tied to, okay, first off, this is a war, but also petrol is awful for our environment and it's killing the entire mm. world. So maybe it's a good thing that it's costly because it shouldn't be a cheap resource because it's damning. Well, I mean, that's the hard thing, right? It's like, I understand the people who can't afford totally. it and they have to get to work or school or whatever it is, but that's not the people in the capital complaining about these things. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. these, the, these kind of mainstream, uh, and especially kind of elitist talking points about these issues. And when I say elitist, I don't mean like leftist liberal elites. I mean like the people who are talking heads in Fox news and the Washington post and CNN and all those other mm -hmm. places. But they're writing these articles about, yeah, how, how awful that is. Or even looking at the quote-unquote labor shortage that's going on. Where it's like, oh, no one wants to work. And if you want to raise the minimum wage, it's just going to make it so that your burrito costs $30. And no one's going to want that anyway. And that's like, the only way. CEOs can't make less money. <laughs> right. So that burritos don't have to cost $30. No, it's the people who are doing the vast majority of the labor that can't make a living wage. Exactly. And yeah. so, like, you're literally saying that you want your burritos to be cheaper f and you're fine with slavery to allow that to happen? Like, I mean, not slavery. Well, I mean, it depends. Yeah, I where, mean... Where certain, you know, ingredients are coming from. Exactly. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it's a, uh... Or it's like, oh, with the prices of petrol <laughs> that have gone up recently we have to cut our vacation by two mm -hmm. days you know like mm -hmm. that's when they are like okay i don't want to hear from you <laughs> yeah so yeah. it just uh you know it it highlights the alter in which consumerism has been placed in our society mm -hmm. um and how it is elevated to such a seemingly objective good that it it becomes the most important issue rather than the other many many issues that come with consumption of goods oh absolutely yeah, yeah. the other touch point i had was in regards to katniss's conspiracy theory about <laughs> district 13 because i think conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories i think they're fun uh and i think they're fascinating and, and interesting i mean yeah you love them from a scholarly perspective exactly <laughs> uh i am not someone who you don't have a wall of you know all of the pictures no no red then. string yeah no i don't no. watch youtube videos no. <laughs> but as a historian and an educator i find them really compelling and interesting ways of looking at how people view institutions and institutional knowledge and in particular the government but other kinds of uh, institutions as well because just as Katniss does with the Mockingjay flutter in the corner many of these conspiracy theorists have seen as proof these small shreds of evidence that 
they then expound to these much larger conspiracies. You know, we can think about the flag that's quote-unquote waving in the moon landing footage, which shows that it must have been in a place with atmosphere. Or the idea of the magic bullet with JFK's assassination. Like these these small pieces the, of details. The umbrella? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. These small details that I think it's fair to raise questions, but oftentimes can be overly relied on to develop these conspiracy theories. But at the same time, that is coming in through a cultural and historical context, because it's not just people having conspiracy theories out of nowhere, but particularly in the American contexts, conspiracy theories have gained in prominence and gained in popularity because it has become easier to believe in conspiracy theories once we know that actual conspiracies have occurred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's that bit. And as that kind of information came out, especially in the 1970s, it became much more difficult to have faith in government. Once you know that the government has been lying to you about certain things, then you're like, well, why aren't they lying to us about this? Exactly. Yeah. And so in the 1970s, we get information about, obviously, Watergate, a big one. Mm -hmm. um, we get uh, information about the MK Ultra experiments for mind control that mm -hmm. the CIA did. We get information about... Uh, Iran-Contra and how the CIA has been funding, you know, those kinds of issues uh, abroad. We get uh, information about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. You know, all of these things start coming out. So it makes sense that as more actual conspiracies, actual nefarious plans that people have been developing, including our government, it makes sense why people would have less and less faith in the government. Um, one thing that I, I recently kind of realized and, and shared to my students was how um, in 1997, a set of CIA documents were declassified about Operation Northwoods, which was after Castro took power in Cuba and all the American businesses and gangsters essentially were kicked out of Cuba. The CIA was like, well, we can't have that. So how could we invade Cuba, but make it so that we aren't the bad guys? <laughs> And so they came up with this plan uh, called Operation Northwoods of ways they can make an invasion of Cuba be seen in a positive light, uh, including the idea of destroying American boats and killing Americans and blaming on Cubans to justify Cu an invasion of Cuba. This comes out four years before 9-11. And so the 9-11 was an inside job conspiracy theorists have a specific document where um, the American government considered killing Americans to go to war. And it's much easier to believe that the Bush administration killed Americans or allowed Americans to die to create a rationale to go to war once we've seen that the American government has at least considered this in the past, yeah. uh, even though they didn't go through with Operation Northwoods because JFK was like, maybe mm -hmm. not. That, that's a little too far. <laughs> yeah. Just I mean, we're definitely going to have multiple assassination attempts against Castro. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen under my watch for sure. But yeah. this is a little bit much CIA. Yeah. yeah. So yes, <laughs> like I, seeing... Katniss's engagement with the idea that District 13 might still be around and other people's as well, you know, Bonnie and Twill being the ones to raise this to her attention, I think is interesting because it shows the context in the, these districts that they know the Capitol is lying to them yeah. all the time. It mm -hmm. is clear that they can't trust the Capitol. And so if information that of what the Capitol says, if there's proof that perhaps they're lying about it, then it's really easy to believe that proof. 
yeah, that's a, a good connection that I, I wasn't thinking about. But yes, definitely uh, applies. Yes, yes. Well, you know I love those conspiracy theories. <laughs> I know, you do. Um, and honestly, my students do too. Every semester I, I incorporate that into a class. The students love it. It's like their favorite <laughs> lesson. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Also, very fun. If you haven't watched Umbrella Academy Season 2... It deals with a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In very fun ways. <laughs> totally. All right, well, we should move into our next section. These are the, our wonderments, the questions or ideas that are percolating in our heads after reading these chapters. So what are you wondering about? So one is like a, a what if moment of what would Katniss have said if she wasn't holding back when Peta took her to her room and tucked in? Like, we know a little bit of what's going through her mind, but if she actually just communicated whatever, how would that converse, how would those conversations have gone and would much have been different mm. um, in any way? So just a little question I had. And the other thing is, I was wondering what would have happened if Katniss hadn't lied about slipping on the ice and cutting her face? Mm. If she had told her prep team and Effie what really happened, you know, what would they say in response? Would their idea of Penem be shattered in certain ways? Would they be indignant on Katniss's behalf? Or would they be dismissive or make excuses for why such horrible things were necessary? And I understand she probably feels like this can be protecting a bunch of people. Gail, his family, her family, her own self, Hamish Pita, you know. Yeah. Um, but I wonder how people like her prep team and Effie would interact with knowing that these types of things were going on and worse in the districts hmm. since they actually care about her to some degree now. Absolutely, yeah. Well, and, you know, maybe it's also a way of protecting them because I can imagine Effie oh, no. being like, well, I'm going to lodge a complaint. Thank I you. can't believe that the headpiece. Trust me, I know plenty of people in the Capitol. I'll make sure that he, you know, loses his position immediately. And then Effie deals with the repercussions of that because she probably has an inflated sense of her Important. status. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or... It would be explained to her in no, specific true. ways or, you know, whatever, um, in ways to undermine her trust in Katniss or, or whatnot. But, yeah. But yeah, just something I was thinking about. All of these degrees of distance that are, are put up because of trying to protect people, yourselves, because of the violent backlash and surveillance and all of that. Um, but if some of those weren't there, if, yeah, they would be able to have closer to real relationships with each other. Mm, yeah. Or change could happen in the privileged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but what about you? What are you wondering about? Yeah, I had a couple questions. Uh, the first was, I was wondering why... The peacekeepers are the ones fixing, fixing the fence mm. uh, and not why they didn't put like work crews together of District 12 workers. You know, I think there's a few different ideas, but one that, that kind of struck me was, you know, are they already not trusting the district workers? Mm -hmm. Like not feeling like, like believing they might have a form of sabotage or they may not complete the, the work correctly. 
And so the only people they can trust to create this security system is the peacekeepers. Yeah. Um, which I think really highlights the extent to which this is a colonial force, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was one thing that, that struck me and a question that I had. The other was I was wondering why Cinna and the prep team had to rush out because mm-hmm. Katniss was talking about how she was looking forward to spending time with Cinna, but they, they all had to leave very quickly. And I imagine part of this is because the announcement was the next day. But particularly before that was shown in the narrative, I was wondering, you know, is there a rule that makes it so that it's actually not allowed for capital citizens to stay in the districts? Mm. That for whatever reason they, they give, ultimately they don't want those people to, yeah, learn more about the conditions of what's happening in the districts or maybe even develop relationships and sympathy for the people in the districts. Um, and so having as much separation as possible through kind of formal policies, you know, I could see being a tool for the capital. Totally. Oh, let's walk over to the Malark Bakery. Mm-hmm. And then they like walk past the gallows, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we don't really see capital tourists or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as little contact as possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, let's head into our final segment. This is our intentions, what we're taking away from this discussion. So what is your intention? Yeah, I think mine kind of comes from calling Hamish out for his gaslighting tactics here. And just thinking about calling things out for what they are. Yeah, the fact that we can hold a lot of love and respect for a character like Hamish while also critiquing him for the problematic things he does, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I think that we can do the same thing for humans mm-hmm. that we know, too. Yeah, to some degree, you, you have to do that if you want to, to love them more fully, whether, mm. whether people or characters. So, yeah, just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, so what I'm I'm taking away from this conversation and from these chapters is really being more aware of or, or seeing a really acute example of my privilege because we see in these chapters how the capital is really targeting Katniss and Hamish and these tributes and, and Katniss in particular through the quarter quell, through the electrifying of the fence, through all of these things that are utilizing as many resources they can to, yeah, again, target her as someone to commit state violence against. Mm-hmm. And I am someone who has never had to really worry about that. I am a white presenting cis straight guy. And that means that I have never had to worry about intense police brutality or violence just for the way I look or worry about whether using the bathroom that corresponds with my gender might result in me having violence or um, worry about if my mental health is going to make people put me on certain lists or, or possibly institutionalize me. Like all of these methods through which already marginalized groups are further targeted in society, do exist in our society. And especially considering the recent Supreme Court 
opinion that came out regarding abortion and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, where women's bodies are being targeted for greater control by the state. Though we, we should probably say the bodies of people with uteruses. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that, that I, I am more acutely aware of how that is something that I can I can only see from an outsider's perspective and hopefully do what I can to help resist. But um, ultimately, I, I don't have to worry about it the same way that many other people do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that is going to wrap up our discussion on these chapters. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we will be reading chapters 13 and 14, where Katniss and Hamish get drunk. Oh, an upgrade from the candy. Is it? <laughs> the candy was so charming. Yeah, I don't like peppermints. I know you don't, but why are they getting drunk? That's true. Although why with candy too? I mean, are there any good causes for everything <laughs> in these <laughs> Every week should just be, what happens next week? Everything's awful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's exciting. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description, and we hope that you join us on Patreon so that you can get access to the book club discussions and all the extra fun content that we're putting there as we read through these books. We want to thank Kimberly Tebe-Pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.